0: Everyone, we'll, just to let you know, we'll start the uh, presentation in about one minute. Everyone, we'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Webcast, Injury and Illness Record-Keeping Wrap-Up, Guidance to Year in Reporting, sponsored by J.J. Keller. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine. I'm moderating today's presentation. On behalf of the National Safety Council, we hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. We'll start the presentation in a couple of minutes, but first, there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not affect those in the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the Council or Magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen, type your question, and click the Send button. Please feel free to ask your question any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also, after this presentation, we'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's introduce our speakers. With us today are Derek Plowden and Ed Zaleski. Derek Plowden is a technical editor for JD's content, JD Keller's content and consulting services. He writes for the monthly newsletter Has Safety Training Advisor, responds to customer questions and contributes content for several publications. Derek specializes in multiple topics in construction regulations, ergonomics, walking, working surfaces, personal protective equipment, and injury and illness record keeping. Ed Zaleski is an EHS editor at JJ Keller. Ed researches and creates content on a variety of safety-related topics and contributes to several products. He specializes in issues such as walking, working surfaces, powered industrial trucks, and injury and illness record keeping. Once again, we thank you all for joining us, and Derek, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Alan.
0: And thank you everyone for joining
1: us today. Ed and I are extremely excited to talk about injury and illness record keeping, particularly because it's one of those hot topics uh, that raises tons of questions at the end of the year. And of course, Ed and I will be answering some of those questions throughout today's webcast. But, uh, you know, if, if we're not able to get to them, um, please submit them and, and we'll be able to look further into them and, and answer them after uh, today's event. So we're going to take a deep dive into part of record keeping that often gets overlooked. And that's specifically the end of the year or start of next year requirements. Um, You can certainly, you know, ask us questions, like I said, on any of the topic, but mainly uh, we're going to focus on what you do with your records in the months between November and May. Now, first we'll go over the basic record keeping requirements that apply all year long, and then next, of course, we'll spend some time on the OSHA 300A summary, uh, specifically talking about, um, you know, who's supposed to sign that summary when it's when it's all done. Um, you know, we'll use some of OSHA's frequently asked questions and cited violations to address certain issues, uh, such as what happens when a case starts in one year but it continues on to the next. Uh, we'll also talk about what you need to know about counting the hours for temporary workers and what you have to do to send the summary uh, to your home workers or to workers who don't report to an office. Now we'll talk about who has to submit the 300A summary data electronically to OSHA as well, and when they have to submit that data. And then we'll finish up with a quick discussion about uh, total recordable case rates, uh, DART rates, and any other rates included. Now, let's start with some of the basic record-keeping requirements that apply all year long. First, it's knowing whether you're covered by the routine record-keeping requirements. Now, unless an exception applies here, you're likely covered if your entire firm has 11 or more employees at any time during the year, and that's a company-wide count. So if you have several different locations, I know some of you might, um, and some of them have 10 or fewer employees, uh, they are still included in your entire company-wide count. Uh, for instance, if a location uh, has two employees, but one of your other locations has 17, both of those locations are covered potentially by the record keeping requirements because of the size of the entire firm. Now, there is an exception to the record keeping requirements for low hazard industries. These are listed in Appendix A to Subpart B and also include industry classifications such as dentist office. Uh, you can include health stores in there, bookstores and florists, uh, banks and accounting firms are in there as well, civic organizations, law offices, and just many other that are on that list. Uh, this exemption applies at the establishment level, something you also want to keep in mind, or an individual location. Your entire firm can have some locations that are exempt and some that are covered depending on their business activity. So you want to make sure that you're paying close attention again to, Appendix A to subpart B, looking at those industry classifications to make sure um, that your locations are either exempt or are covered. Now in 2020, OSHA issued many different citations related to the agency's reporting requirements. All employers and establishments all the time must report to OSHA any work-related deaths or work-related inpatient hospitalizations and amputations, or the loss of an eye to the agency within the timeframes listed on this slide. Now, even if you are exempted from the routine record keeping requirements, you must report. Remember that nobody, exempt from, nobody is exempt from these requirements alone. Deaths must also be reported if they occur within 30 days of the workplace event. In contrast, you also have to report hospitalizations, amputations, or loss of an eye that occur within 24 hours of the workplace event. Uh, state plans like California may have more stringent reporting requirements. Again, there are a bunch of other state plans that are out there, so again, be sure you're paying close attention to what does and doesn't apply to you. Now we should throw out there OSHA's reporting requirements don't change for COVID-19 fatalities or hospitalizations. The agency makes clear that you must report each work-related COVID-19 fatality within eight hours of learning about it, and each work-related COVID-19 inpatient hospitalization within 24 hours of learning about it. Now the basic requirements that apply all year to establishments that are covered by the record keeping requirements include making sure that you correctly enter all recordable injuries and illnesses on your log. All of those recordable cases must be entered within seven days of learning that the case is recordable. And for every recordable case, you must also complete a 301 incident report for each case on the log. In addition, you may have a privacy case log or other paperwork that goes along with that. Now, OSHA does allow you to use equivalent forms such as workers' comp, uh, first report of injury, as long as the equivalent form collects the same information as the OSHA's forms, and that's key. Most state forms are equivalent, but verify this again before using them as a replacement.
2: All right, thank you, Derek. Now, in order to be a recordable case, an injury or illness must meet three conditions. First, it has to be work-related. Second, a new case. And of course, it must result in one or more of the general recording criteria. Those are death, days away from work, restricted work activity or transfer, medical treatment beyond first aid, loss of consciousness, or a significant injury diagnosed by a medical professional. Now, there are also specific types of cases covered by the regulations. Uh, These include things like hearing loss cases, needle stick injuries, medical removals, even tuberculosis cases. Uh, We have many resources available for you on determining recordability of cases. And again, we'll go over any of the questions you have on these things along the way. Some of those more unusual ones, we may need a little time to dig. But uh, again, as Derek said, we're going to primarily be focusing on the end of the year stuff. Now, of course, covered employers must keep, we assume you're all covered, hopefully everyone listening here, we're assuming has a 300 log, you have to keep that Part 1904 paperwork for five years following the end of the calendar year that the records cover. So here in 2021, uh, the last full year is 2020. That means you must have all the forms from 2016 through 2020, because we haven't quite finished this year yet, you don't have a full year's log yet you do have to update the OSHA 300 log to reflect changes in cases that occur during that retention period. Now that means you may have to update an existing case or add a newly discovered case. So let's say that a case from several years ago, way back in 2017, results in surgery during 2021. Well, you would go back to the 2017 log and change the information regarding the days away needed. Now, it's assuming it's not a new case, that it's a continuation or addition on that old case. But that might mean changing that 2017 entry from other recordable case or from a restricted work case to uh, checking the box for days away from work, for example. You could even have a case where an employee shows you they had a work-related injury during a previous year. Maybe they report in January that they had one in December. Well, you would need to go back and add that case to your log. Now, again, use the log for the year the injury or illness occurred if you know the date. Now, you don't have to go back and update the summary, the annual summary after it's been posted, and you don't have to update a 301. You can can if you want to, but OSHA only requires you to update the 300 log itself. Now, one question that comes up fairly often And again, you can send your questions in at any time, we'll be taking them at the end. One that comes up a lot though, is how to keep records when you have multiple locations. Well, OSHA says that for each establishment, that generally means a single physical location, each establishment must have a log covering that location. Now, as we said, a particular location could be exempt from uh, the 300 log by being a low hazard industry. Again, check Appendix A to Subpart B to see if your, if your industry is listed. But otherwise, every covered establishment must have a separate 300 log for each location or establishment that you expect to be in operation for one year or longer. Since that comes up a lot and causes some confusion, OSHA does address the definition of establishment in the regulation 1904-46. There are some times when more than one physical location can be considered one establishment. Uh, Maybe you have a campus setting with two or three buildings in close proximity, and they all carry out the same type of business under common management. You could have one log for that campus. Now, there are also times when you might have one physical location, but different types of businesses operating there. In that case, you might be able to separate the businesses and keep them on more than one log, but check that definition section. Uh, If you're confronting these types of questions, that 1904-46 has a detailed description of the criteria you need to meet. In most cases, however, we can tell you one physical location will be one establishment and you will need a 300 log unique to that location. Okay, while you do have to keep a log for each location, you are certainly allowed to centralize your record keeping. Uh, You can keep the information on recordable cases at a, a headquarters or other centralized location. Now, you do need the ability to transmit information about a case within seven calendar days. You're supposed to put a case on the log within seven calendar days. You also need to be able to access the records within four hours if you have an OSHA inspection, pull the records for the establishment being inspected. And of course you have to be able to get the records within one business day if you have a request from an employee, employee's representative, even a former employee. And it's actually within seven calendar days if a union representative asks for them. So for example, let's say you have a lot of retail store locations that are covered. You might have a central location where you keep all the records on software. But then if one of those establishments gets visited by an OSHA inspector, you'll want to be able to produce the records only for that location, and you need to be able to provide that within four hours.
1: Awesome, thanks, Ed. And actually, I'll tell you what, Ed, Uh, while you're going through some of your slides, we got a few questions in, um, and I just wanna take one of them quick before, I move on to linking employees to one of your sites. So um, someone asked whether or not COVID-19 is reportable in the workplace. And um, it's a really good question because of course it's one that we've gotten a lot of lately. Um, OSHA's record keeping requirements, um, they require that any covered employer record certain work-related injury and illnesses on their OSHA 300 log. And COVID-19 can be a recordable case Um, or illness if a worker is infected as a result of performing their work-related duties. However, employers are only responsible for reporting cases of COVID-19 if the following are true, right? Three things have to happen. So the case is a confirmed case of COVID-19, right? Uh, The case is also work-related as defined by work-relatedness in uh, 1904.5. and the case involves one or more of the general reporting criteria set at 1904.7. So again, yeah, to answer your question, yes, it can be reportable, but again, we have to make sure that all three of those things that I just listed are true if it is going to be reportable case. Um, I hope that helps clear some things up for you. Moving on, um, that, that brings up the question about how to track Uh, recordable injuries and illnesses that occur to employees who may not work at a particular location, such as electricians or other tradespeople, and even employees who work from home. So hopefully uh, some of the the things I'll talk about in the next few slides will cover some questions that have actually been submitted again, um, because I see that they actually relate. So uh, perfect. Um, OSHA says that you should link these workers with a fixed location or establishment. And this may be the log for the closest location to the worker, the log for the location that issues the employee's paycheck, uh, the location from which the person is supervised or gets instructions or any other location that makes the most sense. Now OSHA also addresses how to handle employees who work at short-term establishments. We mentioned that you need a 300 log for each location that will be in operation for a year or more. Now, there may be workers at locations that are expected to be in operation for less than a year, such as construction workers who work at a series of short-term establishments. OSHA says you can create one log that covers all of your short-term establishments. Now, you may also create an OSHA 300 log that covers short-term establishments based on individual company divisions or even geographic regions. So, again, another thing to keep in mind. Now, at the end of the year, you're required to go over your OSHA 300 log to verify that all of the entries within it are accurate and complete. Now, if you find any mistakes or omissions, you have to correct them to the best of your knowledge. Next, you'll need to fill out and certify the 300 annual summary form. We'll talk a little bit about that in the next few slides. But first, let's take a closer look at how you might review the 300 log. Now, what's key here is that OSHA doesn't really specify how they expect employers to evaluate the completeness and even the accuracy of the OSHA 300 log. It's not really listed anywhere. There's no real guidance, but presumably the person doing the verifying understands OSHA's record keeping requirements. They understand the company's internal employee reporting process and has access to all the forms and information about cases. So remember this person has some, or if not uh, you know, a decent amount of knowledge as to what goes into that 300 log and how it is to be as accurate as possible before it's submitted. Now you don't have to go over the OSHA log with a fine tooth comb, unless that's your company policy, uh, but you do want to spot check, compare cases on your log to workers comp records, uh, near miss records, safety committee reports, any witness statements, doctor reports, uh, your memory of the case, other documents you may have, just to be sure that the cases have been recorded and they've been recorded correctly. And and I want to go over uh, what I just covered actually about the workers' comp cases, uh, because oftentimes a lot of folks will fill out their OSHA 300 logs and say, well, workers' comp doesn't necessarily uh, say that this should be recordable, so therefore it shouldn't be an OSHA recordable. You want to be really careful there because workers' comp Uh, definitions of reportable and OSHAs are completely separate and you want to make sure that you follow OSHAs at all times so be really careful while you're doing that. Now if you do discover errors you can change the log to make it accurate. This would include cases that were reported more than once or if they were duplicated. Now some employers have a medical professional review uh, the log at the end of the year. Occasionally the medical professional will point out a case that, you know, received medical treatment, but now says that the treatment wasn't necessary. Um, however, OSHA says that you cannot remove the case from the log unless medical treatment was never actually provided. Okay, so that's key. If treatment was provided, the case must remain on the log. Uh, now, if the medical professional says a case isn't work-related and you determine it wasn't under OSHA's definition, uh, you could remove that case from your log but even if workers comp denied a case, it can still be recordable under OSHA's definition. So kind of what I was talking about in the last slide, you really want to be careful that you're making sure to understand what workers comp, uh, you know, defines as recordable, what OSHA defines as recordable. Now, workers comp agency might deny a claim for a case that you correctly recorded. Um, so again, like I said, you can have that case compensable but not recordable or vice versa. A case that, that might be recordable uh, might not be compensable. So again, just make sure you're really careful.
2: That's a good point, Derek. That one's been coming up a lot. Uh, that workers' comp, work workers' comp, and work-related. They both use the term work-related. That that throws people. All right. So let's look at what happens when you fill out your summary, but you have a case that occurred last year, and the employee's still away from work or still on restricted work when you're filling out the log. Well, what do you do? Well, OSHA says if a case occurred, well, we're saying last year, but let's say it happened in 2021, and you're working on your log in January of 2022, the employee is still away from work when you fill out your summary. Well, OSHA says you estimate the days away or days of restriction that the employee will need, and of course, up to a maximum of 180. You mark that estimate on your log. Uh, you might have an estimate from a doctor even. you know They said he hopefully will come back this date. Uh, You might have experience with similar injuries where you can make a guess. Then later, when you know the actual day count, you do go back, of course, and update the 300 log. We covered that. You have to update that during the storage. But you do not need to update the annual summary once you've certified and posted it. So if you said, well, you know, we had X number of days away and that number increased or decreased from your estimate, you don't have to go back and change the annual summary. It's already done. All right, brief pause here to address a related question that often comes up at the end of the year. As I kind of mentioned, if an injury happens in November or December, but the employee is still on restrictions or days away into January, do you add a 300 log in the next year? Well, OSHA says no, you only record the case one time. This is why the duplicate cases can sometimes happen, as Derek said too. Uh, Putting an entry on the next year's log would count against you. It would count as a new case and you didn't have a new case that year. For a lot of people, it can feel kind of strange if you have an injury really late in the year, say December 28th and you record 17 days away for that case. Well, obviously the the days away extended into the next year. But remember, the purpose of counting those days is to indicate the relative severity of an injury. Cases with more days away indicate more serious injuries. For that purpose, it really doesn't matter if those days away extend into the next calendar year. So that throws people off, but that's actually the correct way to do it. Another one is many employers want to know what to do with the summary in the log. Do you have to send this to OSHA? Do we put it in the mail? Well, no, actually. Most employers just keep and maintain the records. And of course, it's important to have a good system, as we mentioned, for producing the records if an OSHA inspector drops by an establishment. This is one of the first things the inspector will ask to review when he or she shows up at a location. Now, you may get a request from the Bureau of Labor Statistics or OSHA or your state agency on a state plan. Uh, that directs you to send the information in as part of a data collection. So that still happens uh, for various reporting options, but unless you get that request, you don't have to send your log anywhere at the end of the year. All right, let's keep talking about the annual summary. The basic requirement for completing the summary includes filling in the number of cases for each column on the log. Now, that's the total number of cases involving death, Total number of cases with days away, total number of cases with transfer restriction, and the total other recordable cases. Then you actually fill in the total numbers of days away and the total numbers of days of restriction from columns K and L. So, as an example, simple example, suppose you had four cases involving days away, and each of those cases had five days. Four times five is 20. So you would list 20 total days away from work for all the cases. The summary also includes spaces for the total number of injuries you see at the bottom, skin disorders, poisoning, hearing loss, respiratory conditions, and other illnesses. Again, these are different columns on the log, and software will often total this up for you. You do also have to include the average number of employees and the total number of hours worked by all employees. We will get to that in just a moment. Now, hopefully uh, this applies to all of you, or at least some of you, what happens if you had no recordable injuries or illnesses during the year? That's good news. But be aware, you still have to complete an annual summary, filling in zeros in all those spaces. Uh, you still have to certify the summary and post it. You may even have to submit it to OSHA either through the electronic reporting tool March 2nd, again, we'll talk about that, or if you did get a data collection. So just be aware, even if you had no cases, you still need to post an annual summary.
1: Awesome, thank you, and so let's spend just a short amount of time, uh, not too long, talking about some of the math. Um, I'm not a huge math fan myself, so um, I'll try to make it uh, as quick and painless for you all as possible. Uh, If you have a payroll system that keeps track of these things, uh, you may not have to do the math at all, lucky for you. Uh, Just use the known numbers. But if you're not sure, OSHA provides a worksheet to help you fill out the summary. And that worksheet says to follow the steps uh, here on the slide. So first, you have to add the total number of employees you paid in all pay periods during the year. And you have to include all employees, full-time, part-time, salary, time, -time, seasonal salary and hourly employees within that number. You'll next count the number of pay periods for the entire year. You'll divide the number of employees. Thanks Ed for switching that over for us. Uh, You'll divide that number of employees by the number of pay periods, and then round the answer to the next highest whole number. So it should look something like what we have here as an example on the slide. Now for figuring the total hours worked, uh, by all employees, uh, you want to make sure that, um, you know, you need, you include employees that you paid, right? Even temporary employees who are not directly on your payroll. Uh, If you were the employer that provided the day-to-day supervision of the temps as well. And actually let's just, let's just jump back to that, uh, that slide quickly and just kind of cover some things here. Um, again, this is just kind of an example that OSHA provides Uh, The Acme company here only had 12 pay periods because they paid workers once per month. And you want to note that the same employees get counted in in many pay periods, but that's normal. Uh, We get a total of 392. So dividing that 392 number by the 12-day pay periods, we get 32.6 employees, uh, which rounded up to 33 employees total. Now, if you glance down uh, the column for the number of employees paid each period, you can see that an average of. 33 sounds just about right. Uh, OSHA does say that if you pay about the same number of employees every pay period throughout the year, then you can use that number as your annual average. You should use this formula, however, if the number of employees changes. For example, let's say your business is seasonal or your establishment grew or shrunk throughout the year. When the number of employees changes throughout the year, you should use that formula to calculate the average. Now, OSHA says that uh, day-to-day supervision happens uh, when in addition to specifying the output, product, or result to be accomplished by the person's work, the employer supervises the details, the means, and the methods and processes by which the work is to be accomplished. And that's key to define here because some of you may have temp employees, but you aren't necessarily sure whether or not they need to go on your OSHA 300 log or whether um, uh, you know the, the temp employees or the Um, you know, the temp agency needs to keep those records on hand, uh, as opposed to you and record. Now, when you hire temps, you probably explain how to perform the job. So your company most likely has to provide that supervision or does have that supervision. uh, So it would be up to you to keep that that, that recordable on your log. Note that you do not include hours of vacation, even if employees were paid for it, or other non-work time, holidays, or sick leave, and you don't include the hours worked by volunteers uh, if you have them. Now, I know I said I'd go through this quickly, but here's just a bit more math. OSHA recognizes that not all employees are paid by the hour, so the agency allows for estimates. This is the formula, formula provided by OSHA, excuse me, in the worksheet to help you fill out the summary. Now, if you're like me, you'd rather not do the math yourself, uh, our safety management suite automatically figures the total case numbers for you in the incidence tool. It's honestly a great resource uh, that I've even used uh, to help figure out some of these numbers. It allows you to easily track incidences. It allows you to easily track near misses and even property damage. Uh, you can analyze your incidence trends through charts and create uh, you know, privacy case logs and sharps logs Really, it's a great way to keep and maintain your required and non-required injury and illness records in one organized place. Now, if you'd like free access to the Incident Center and all the other tools and resources and safety management suite, please let us know by using the poll on your screen. And along with your access, you'll also receive our white paper on injury and illness record keeping FAQs.
2: while you get a moment there, I wanted to uh, remind everybody, just as a recap, I know we get a lot of questions, probably on uh, you know how to figure hours worked by employees and and how to count the employees. In the most simple term, I think, is to remember, if you're responsible for recording injuries to that employee, as, as Derek was explaining with temps, then you have to count them as an employee during the pay period they worked for you. Uh, and then for the hours, uh, the reason we don't count vacations, holidays, sick leave, and other time that employees are paid, well, we're hoping the employees would not have work-related injuries during vacations, holidays, things like that. <clears throat> so those hours don't count as hours worked. And so that's the, the most basic way I think to think about it is, remember, if you uh, if you have to record their injuries, you have to count them as your employees, even if they're not on your payroll. And for hours, hours worked, for the most part means hours worked when the individual could have gotten a work-related injury. All right, we're going to uh, move on then and talk about visiting other establishments. So on the topic of hours worked for the summary, there is an OSHA FAQ asking how to count hours when you have employees that normally work at one location, but they get injured in another one of your locations. All right, well, who counts the injury and who counts the hours worked? Well, the injury must be recorded in the log for the establishment where the injury actually happened. Again, each establishment has its own log. Now for the hours, you count the hours the employee works at your, lo- your location and the other establishment would count the hours the employee worked at that location. So for example, Maybe the employee worked 1500 hours at a primary location and 700 hours at a different establishment. I know sometimes maybe you don't track this hour by hour where people work and they move around, do the best you can. Uh, Quick fact on which log to count the injury onto. In this case, we're assuming both establishments keep 300 logs. Uh, So again, you would record it on the location or establishment where the injury occurred. If that establishment doesn't keep a log for some reason, they're exempt maybe, uh, then you would link the injury back to the establishment where the employee normally works. All right, now let's talk about who can sign the annual summary. In 1904-32, OSHA lists who is allowed to sign and certify and this person is legally accountable for the accuracy of the records. In fact, OSHA could even go after that person in criminal court. They don't usually go after individuals, but you know, hey, it's up there. So the regulation says that a company executive must certify that he or she examined the 300 log. We talked about the review and reasonably believes that it is correct and complete. Well, that must be based on a reasonable belief that the log and summary are complete. Uh, The person certifying, therefore, this is the official has to have some general understanding of OSHA record keeping requirements should be familiar with your company's record keeping process. And I think probably most importantly, should know that the company has effective procedures and applies them appropriately to create accurate and complete records. Now the precise meaning of reasonable belief, uh, that could be determined on a case by case basis. I can't give you a hard and fast answer. Circumstances vary, Uh, but decisions about recordability of the individual cases may differ and even the uh, details of a particular case but uh, reasonable belief. Keep in mind also, OSHA does allow electronic signatures from the executive. So again, if you've got logs at a multiple locations, the executive can sign uh, more than one log just through a software program, for example. All right, you got your summary filled out. You got it certified. You need to post a paper copy by February 1st. Now again, each log should have a corresponding summary for it. And that means each establishment should have a summary for that location. Once it's posted, you keep it posted until April 30th. And during that time, make sure it's not changed, make sure it doesn't get marked up or torn down, and make sure it doesn't get covered by other materials. You will post this in an area where notices to employees are normally posted. Might be a company bulletin board or in a break room. In a very large facility, you may need more than one posting. And As we noted earlier, if the details of a recorded injury change after you posted the summary, you do not have to go back and update the summary. All right. Unlike the executive signature, you cannot use the computer to post the summary. You do need to post a physical paper copy. Now, you can certainly make an electronic copy available on your intranet in addition to posting a paper copy but OSHA has flat out said that electronic posting alone does not meet their requirements.
1: Thank you, Ed. So let's talk a little bit about posting the summary for field or even home workers. Now here's a question that comes up this time of year, uh, usually for us, and that is, do you have to send a copy of the summary to home workers, remote workers, or workers who don't report to an office? Now, OSHA says that you only have to post the summary in a location where the log is kept. However, you can send a copy through mail to these kinds of workers if you want to, or you can email it to them. I know that's a lot easier than sending it through the mail. Note that this requirement may be different in different states. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, California is one of those states Uh, they require that you send a copy to home workers for them to post in their home office, for instance. That's an actual requirement uh, per California. Now in 2016, OSHA began requiring certain establishments to submit their 300A data electronically to the agency. Now, uh, just because you keep a log, that does not mean you automatically have to send your 300A data summary. Uh, or summary data to OSHA. Now they specify that only establishments uh, that have 250 or more employees who are already keeping part 1904 records and establishments with 20 to 249 employees that are also listed in appendix A to subpart E as high hazard industries by their NAICS code, uh, those establishments are required to submit their data. Again, you wanna make sure that you also note the size is based on uh, the, the establishment, not based on total company size. You may have some establishments that will report and some that won't. Uh, check the appendix A to see if your locations are covered. Even places like grocery stores must electronically submit their annual summary data. So if you might think to yourself, well, I doubt I have to really submit that information. Just keep in mind, Uh, that you want to make sure you double check those appendixes just to make sure. And of course with that question comes, well, when is the deadline for submitting uh, our data? And that deadline is March 2nd as listed on the slide. You have to submit to OSHA's injury tracking application. The URL is actually listed on the slide just in case you aren't entirely sure yet where you're supposed to send it. Uh, OSHA requires you to include your company's employer identification number, or EIN, as some of you know this as. You can find your EIN on tax documents or any other documents associated with the IRS, since the IRS is the agency that assigns that number. And you also need the North American Industry Classification System Code, or what I called the NAICS code earlier, for the establishment if you have more than one business activity at the location and more than one code, uh, OSHA says to choose the code for the activity that generates the most revenue uh, the establishment uh, has or the most employees, um, whichever is more applicable to your business and your situation.
2: Thanks, Derek. And, you know, I want to mention, I'm going to guess we get question on this, but even states like California actually refer you back to the link we've shown here. They, they, they haven't created their own injury tracking application. Um, there might be some differences. Check that. But I did look at California the other day to see where you report, and they 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 send you to OSHA's the federal OSHA portal. All right. Now switching gears. Note that because of a court case that OSHA lost, the agency is requiring uh, is required to post 300A data online, or at least the information for the submissions from 2016 through 2018. Now, does that mean OSHA will continue to publish the info? Well, that remains to be seen. But if you submitted data to OSHA, you'll want to check to see if your data was listed correctly. And again, I've talked to people who, you know, like I said, like Derek said, a grocery store that has 20 or more employees is supposed to be reporting. Um, OSHA thinks they're missing a lot of employers who should be sending these things in, and they are not. That's why you want to make sure your data is accurate, too. Uh, Related to this, employers currently only have to report the annual summary data form, the 300A. When this regulation was first published, the reporting rule, it actually included the 300 log and the 301 reports. Uh, For various reasons and legal challenges that we're not going to bother with here, uh, OSHA actually cut back and only required reporting the annual summary. But OSHA is planning to reinstate the requirement To file all forms. Now, this would only be for 250 employees at one establishment or more. The 20 to 249 would not be in there. Uh, But that that proposed rule is at the Office of Management and Budget getting reviewed right now. Uh, So it'll come out as a proposed rule maybe in a month or so. And then, of course, employers will have a chance to submit comments. So this means it's not going to be finalized to change your obligations for your reporting in 2022. But depending on how fast it moves, uh, employers with 250 or more at one establishment may have more obligations by the 2023 filing deadline, assuming OSHA can update their website to accept all the information. All right, speaking of maintaining records for at least five years, OSHA has cited employers for failing to maintain these records. You do have to save the 300 log, the privacy case list if you have one, uh, the annual summary and the 301 incident reports for five years following the end of the calendar year that those records covered. Again, uh, that should be 2016 through 2020. Once this calendar year ends, you've got a full year of 2021. You can dump the 2016 stuff. Now, during that period, again, you have to change. You have to update changes to cases on the 300 log. You do not have to update the 301 or the 300A. Uh, and one other thing, though, keep in mind. OSHA can actually only cite you for violations in the previous six months. They have a statute of limitations. So if there's an error on, say, your 2018 log, uh, that cannot be cited at this time. Now, the administration, there is a bill in Congress that would change that, would basically extend the statute of limitations for 1904 records, part 1904 injury records, to the entire five year retention period. Now we're keeping an eye out to see if that bill gets signed. Uh, if you've been watching how uh, effectively Congress is working lately, I don't know how, how likely that is, but it is It is something that is in at least the possibility there.
1: So next with that uh, comes this idea of making sense of all the numbers, right? Like what's the point? What is- Um, this have to do with the bigger picture of ocean injury and illness record keeping and your responsibilities towards the end of the year. Um, Well, essentially, at the end of the year, you'll want to calculate your injury and illness rates to see how you're doing. Uh, You'll also want to compare yourself to any national rates for your industry and track any improvements. That's why making sure that these numbers are as accurate as possible is very important. Your company may have a policy on which rates you track, In addition, you may have certain clients who will require you to report your rates. And in addition, your insurance company uh, may want your rates included. Now I've listed the most frequently used rates on this slide. You can figure out many other rates through the magic of math, um, but the 200,000 hours in the formula represents the equivalent of 100 employees working 40 hours per week, 50 weeks per year and provides the standard base or the incidence rates. Uh, This constant is used to calculate incidence rates per 100 full-time equivalent employees just to show the relative level of injuries and illnesses among firms of different sizes. In other words, it creates a ratio so comparisons can be made. Now this works for establishments with less than 100 workers as well. Uh, OSHA tells you not to change the constant if you want to compare your establishment rates to the national rates published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics every year. Next, we'll finish up this discussion on rates with how to calculate monthly or quarterly rates, which is something many companies want to do. Just a warning that calculating rates using less than a year of data may not give the most accurate results. You could compute a partial year Uh, incidence rate by dividing the number of cases by the hours worked for a certain period, like a month or a calendar year even, and then multiplying that number by 200,000 hours, the 12 month constant, and then dividing that by the hours worked in that period. Now this approach, however, assumes that injury rates will be the same for the rest of the year. That may not be realistic. For example, let's suppose that you had uh, three recordable injuries for the month you're calculating. The result would assume that you'll have three recordable cases during every month for the rest of the year, and that you'll have the same number of employees every month, and that employees will work the same number of hours every month. That's a lot of assumptions. Um, and Ed will talk a little bit about that in the next slide.
2: Yeah, we do get a lot of people wanting to do partial year rates and uh, you know it, it's fine. It, it, it's kind of like, how are we doing to this point if the numbers continued exactly as they are? So. That, you know, there can be value in that and sharing that with your executives. But yeah, do be aware that it, it may not accurately represent your annual number. All right. So finally, with a lot of craziness over the last uh, year or two, your company might have purchased or opened a new location. You might have sold or closed off an existing location. Well, if you acquire a new location that your company bought from another firm, uh, the previous owner should transfer their 300 records to you but your annual summary only has to cover the period that you actually operated the facility. And that might only be a couple of months. You don't have to run and include all the numbers from the previous owner. So your total hours worked, things like that, it's just for the portion that you owned it. And on the reverse side of that, if you sold off a location, you would transfer your records to the new owner, but you're no longer responsible for that establishment. And of course, if you permanently close a location, same thing, you don't need to create an annual summary because after all, where would you post it? And uh, then you wouldn't need to submit any data to uh, the OSHA's injury tracking application if you're covered by that. So all that brings us to the end of the year wrap up here. We've gone over how to review your log for accuracy, make some spot checks, how to complete your summary and certify it. Uh, how to post the summary, whether it can be electronic, it's gotta be paper too, it's gotta be paper, you can do electronic too. Uh, Some of the submitting data to OSHA for covered employers, who's covered, make sure that you don't just assume you're a low hazard industry. How to figure out some of your incident rates and DART rates, Uh, we answered a few questions that employers commonly ask at this time of year. So we've covered a lot of detailed information. We do have some time left to answer your questions. And again, if we don't get to your question today, or you think we might not, Uh, please sign up for a free trial of Safety Management Suite. One of the most popular features of Safety Management Suite is access to editors like myself and Derek. Uh, We love our record keeping questions and any other environmental health safety questions you have, you'll be able to send them in through that tool and you'll get a response within one hour. So we will get to your questions in just a moment, but I do wanna address uh, some of the inquiries that have come in. You know, The JJ Keller Incident Center in Safety Management Suite as an extension of the safety management suite, it provides tools you need to manage OSHA injury record keeping and reporting requirements. We talked about keeping your records all in one place. So again, if you wanna look at the poll that's on your site, we'll launch that here. Uh, If you'd like access to all our compliance tools and resources, just select that interest and we'll send you a white paper on injury and illness record keeping frequently asked questions. So there's, you know, there's a lot of other programs, customizable training resources, including PowerPoints, five minute safety talks, classroom exercises, quizzes, Uh, you can create custom safety plans from templates. Yes, we do have a COVID-19 vaccination mandate template or a, and a variant of vaccination or testing template for your policy that would be required under that rule. That's already out there. So everything you need. So with that, I am going to say, what kind of questions do we have coming in?
0: Well, first, thank you both for this fantastic presentation. And before we start the q and I want to remind everyone of the valuation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. And so now let's get to some questions. Um, The first one, and I'm sure this is one you all get quite a bit. um, Who determines if an injury or illness is work-related? Is it the safety professional or someone similar? Or is it a doctor or someone similar?
2: Uh, I'm going to go with the safety professional probably in most cases because it's got to be someone who's familiar with OSHA's part 1904 requirements for determining if a case is work-related. A doctor won't necessarily know, and as Derek gave warning earlier, uh, a workers' comp doctor might say, well, this isn't work-related, so it's not covered by workers' comp, but it's possible it's still covered by OSHA's injury record-keeping. So it's got to be someone who is familiar with the criteria uh, for, you know, what makes a case work-related. There is a geographic presumption OSHA uses, if it happened in the workplace, it's probably work related unless an exception applies. And those are in 1904.5. So probably gonna be the safety person who does it.
0: Third next question, how do you count the employee if he or she has both MSHA and OSHA hours? How, Where do you count him or her as an employee? Where is it where they have the most hours?
2: Uh, I'm not quite sure. Uh, You're talking mind safety and health, MSHA. Um, I don't know is this person split between two facilities? Uh, Because I mean, we talked about people who worked at multiple establishments. They might you might count them as an employee, but a certain number of hours at one location and a certain if effectively they'd be part time at two different locations. That's a possibility. Uh, Otherwise, I'm not really sure. Uh, we we might need to dig into that one a little further. That's a complicated one.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I would agree, <laughs> Um, So our next question, we opened a location in June 2021. They meet the requirements as an establishment. Do I need a 300 log for them for 2021?
2: Derek, you want that one?
0: Um, yeah, sure. Ned. Please feel free to jump
1: in to clarify anything. But... Um, OSHA provides that um, you have to provide records if you expect your business establishment to be in business for at least a year or longer, um, and that that's what really gets me confused. That if you want to jump in for clarification, because I believe it's that year mark, correct, that really determines whether or not that establishment will need to provide
2: records. It's that expectation, yeah. Yeah. If, okay. If you open that new location, you expect it, uh, and I, again, we're assuming you have at least ten employees in your company, and that the location is not in a, a partially exempt based on low hazard. But yeah, if you, uh, you know, you open up a new store location and I mean, it might not last a year depending on economic conditions, but if you expect <laughs> right. it to be, if you expect it to be in place for a year, you need a, you know, and it's covered, you need a 300 log there.
0: Our, our next question, can an officer of a company give authority to a direct subordinate to signed uh, logs?
2: Oh, <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> that list. What's what's that list in, is it 1904, 34, 35? I think it said, uh, I, I think Derek had that one. Um, it said like the highest officer at the establishment or, uh, you know, the direct supervisor the highest officer at the establishment. I mean, if it's someone on that list, um, you know, like the, the the director for multiple establishments could sign, but they could also say, look, the highest ranking officer at each location can sign the logs for their locations. They're still on the list. But I don't know, you know, you couldn't go below that. It would still have to be someone who OSHA defines as an executive.
1: I believe Ed, that you might be talking about that authorized employee representative, correct? Or is that different?
2: Because um, they're talking about who's certifying the log, right? Uh,
1: okay, yeah, correct.
2: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's got to be someone who's on that list in the regulation. And that doesn't I know the term executive can throw people because it could be, you know, like right. a, in a retail store, a grocery store, it could be the store manager is the highest ranking person at the location. We don't think of them as executive, but yeah. they should be someone who can sign.
0: Okay, so our next question: As a large hospital system, we have outreach centers which are not on the main campus, but are all under the same payroll policies and reporting system. We have always kept one log in our EMR system. We've never questioned this. The on this, we've never been questioned on this process. Is there any problems with this practice? Uh,
2: um, if if the outreach centers are spaced out geographically, then they sh- they should have their own 300 log. So uh, this is something that comes up, you know, I I get questions like a bank, okay, a bank's not required to keep a 300 log, but it's a good example because you probably everyone's familiar, you have a bank, there might be five or six locations around the city, well, each one would be a unique establishment. Same thing with grocery stores, Uh, you might go to your local, you know, shopping, shopping, whatever, and there might be five or six stores in, in the city. Even though they're spread out, they're all in one city, each one is considered a unique establishment. Uh, To combine more than one location, they have to be in close physical proximity. And and I mean, OSHA doesn't say it, but it probably means within the same city block. So if you've got outreach centers um, in different parts of the city or in different cities, those would be unique establishments and they should have their own 300 log. One of the reasons you want a unique log for that too is if OSHA inspects that location, you only want to give them the injury records for that location. You don't wanna give them the records for your entire business. There's no advantage to doing that. So our next
0: question, if you have multiple locations with 20 to 249 employees, do you need to make an electronic submission on each?
2: Well, in short answer, if they're covered, yes. If they're, if they're uh, in the industries, this is kind of the reverse of the exemption. The reporting obligation lists industries that are required to report. And as I said, I mean, grocery stores are in there. Rental centers are in there. You don't think of these as high hazard locations. And that's why I've talked to employers who said, Oh, geez. Uh, We didn't do it last year and apparently we're supposed to. Um, In fact, OSHA is expecting somewhere in the neighborhood of 400,000 establishments to report and they're getting about 200,000. So we know a lot of people are missing this. But yeah, if you have multiple locations, as I said, grocery stores all over, any grocery store with 20 or more is a unique location and each location has to report. I know it's a pain to file that. Uh, The tracking application does allow you to batch So if you keep all the records at a central location, you can submit it as one batch, but there should be a separate summary for each location.
0: So you mentioned uh, not counting volunteers, and uh, this person asked, what about interns who are unpaid? Are they included, or would they be considered
2: volunteers? Interns, I'm going to grab that one. I'm sorry I'm overrunning Derek here, but uh, interns... I know on that one because I used to do a little HR side of things. Usually an intern is in the workplace for the for an educational benefit. At least that's what the Department of Labor says. So you may have an intern, like a college student who's gaining work experience or something. Um, they are, I think they'd be in the category of volunteers because uh, they're they're not paid. They might be under your control but theoretically, they are in the workplace for the primary purpose of gaining experience for themselves, not to advance your business. In fact, OSHA, uh, the Department of Labor, Wage and Hour Division, kind of a sister agency to OSHA, says that if interns are doing the work that would otherwise be done by employees, then you're supposed to be paying them. They don't qualify as unpaid interns. So that's something to check out, too.
0: It looks like we have time for one more question. Um do I have to record an injury that was not recordable? However, it was reaggravated and now meets the definition of recordable since it, it, it's not a new case?
2: If it wasn't, yeah, well, it, the aggravation of an injury, a non-work injury can become recordable. So if someone hurt his knee p- playing basketball over the weekend, and then while lifting, you know, maybe they need – uh Maybe they need a prescription, meta, a painkiller or anti-inflammatory. Then at work, climbing a ladder or something, they, they really rack that knee and they need knee surgery. That is a recordable work-related injury at that point, uh, based on the date of the incident, say climbing the ladder, or whatever the work-related exposure was. So yeah, that a non-work injury can become recordable if it gets aggravated in the workplace. That means a change in treatment uh, days away that weren't previously required, something like that.
0: Well, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we get, didn't get to everyone's questions. Um, thank you all for uh, contributing so many of them. We really appreciate it. But all of uh, today's unanswered questions will be forwarded to our sponsor. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. That ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Derek Plowden, Ed Zaleski, everyone at JJ Keller, and of course, all of our listeners. Have a safe day.